prayer begins in secret, but God doesn't mean for it to stay in the closet. And so this chapter is on praying with constancy or faithfulness and also with company or with other people. What does a posture of prayer look like? Uh, let's look at some of these passages together. Someone want to look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 for us? Okay, go ahead. And then someone else be looking up Romans 12.12. 12. Okay, Bob. All right. Go ahead. All right, so that one's pretty straightforward. Pray continually, right? Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Okay, so what our word be that describes prayer in that verse? Devoted, okay, good. Uh, then I need someone for Colossians 4, 2. Okay, Margaret, Ephesians 6, 18. Jonathan and Luke 18, 1. Sandra, okay. Go ahead, Margaret. Okay, so we have the idea of devotion again, but then what other two things? What's the sort of attitude or what characterizes it? Okay, so um, do it regularly, be devoted to it, be devoted to it with particular attitudes. Ephesians six eighteen. when you get there. Okay, and Paul uses two different words there. So what would the difference be in your minds between prayer and supplication? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think prayer tends to be the more general word. Supplication is more pleading, sometimes asking. Good. And then uh, Luke 18 and verse 1. Okay. Uh, we did have perseverance at the tail end of Ephesians 6, right? And then we have it again, don't lose heart, same kind of idea. So that's where this uh, chapter has this idea of constancy. And so... Um, it's just kind of briefly here at the beginning of the chapter, but just a good reminder, kind of following up with what we looked at last week, if you're praying on your own or if you're praying in a group, in both cases, prayer should be characterized by consistency and faithfulness and doing it regularly. Um, I don't think I mentioned this before, but uh, one of my coworkers at Inner City, one of the things that uh, struck me was his readiness to pray in a variety of circumstances. Like sometimes... I don't know if you've ever felt this way. Sometimes it, we, we might think, I've got this situation going on. I'd like some prayer for it. I'll just wait and bring it up when we have our next prayer meeting on Wednesday night or something like that. But we could start praying for it right then. We could ask a fellow believer to pray with us about it right then. And so we ought always to be ready to pray. Yes? Yeah. 
So that's definitely something that would be a good, a good goal to work toward. And then, we uh, turn in here. The high point of all pervasive prayer outside the closet door is praying together with other Christians. For us to be ready to pray with other Christians, I think we have to do what he says a little bit higher up on the page, which is, we ought to carry a posture of prayer in the soul as we give ourselves fully to our daily tasks and engagements, and that in a moment we can be ready to go consciously Godward in the car, waiting in line, as we walk before a meal, in the midst of a difficult conversation, and in anything else. Uh, the connection between these two things, I think, is sometimes if we think of prayer as a designated time of day, uh, which it's good to do that regularly, we may not be willing to think about doing it with a fellow believer at a point that's outside of that sort of scheduled time in our day. And if we're not in the habit of praying periodically during the week, we may not be as ready to pray with other believers um, together. Now there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons why we might hesitate to pray with other believers. We're going to talk through some of those things in a minute, and there's some practical suggestions we'll get to even a little bit past that. Um, going back to the quote from page 108, the high point is praying together with other Christians, and so we have at least two fronts to a healthy life of prayer. We pray personally, in secret, and on the move, and we pray corporately, resisting the privatizing of our prayers, not just by asking others to pray for us, but especially by having others pray with us. Then we have this question. Jesus prayed, right? So if Jesus prayed, then that means that we ought to pray, because if anybody could get by without praying, it would be Jesus, right? Because Jesus is God. But if he prayed, then it's probably something that was both a pattern for us and important for us to do. And so we looked at that in the last chapter. And so along these same lines, did we see very clearly last time that saw that Jesus prayed by himself. But do we see instances of him praying with other people? The first three verses we're going to skip because there's some that we looked at uh, previously where he uh, went off on his own and prayed for... I, I, I apologize. The second group of verses we're going to skip because we looked at them last time. But let's look, look at Luke 9.28. Let's all turn there real quick. probably familiar with this account of the transfiguration, but we might not always think about how it starts. Someone want to read verse 28? Okay. All right. So Jesus is going up on the mountain to pray, but he's taking how many people with him? Three other people with him. Okay. So that's uh, one of the instances where Jesus prays. Uh, there's another one in, in Luke, in chapter 11 and verse 1. So turn over a page or so. And someone want to read 11.1? 1? Okay, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Okay, and you're familiar with the model of the Lord's Prayer. But here's another example where this is something that was not necessarily 
designed to be something you pray by yourself, but this was something that he modeled publicly for the disciples in the context of, of them praying. And we don't want to read too much into this circumstance, but that would potentially be an argument against using something like the Lord's Prayer as an Our Father, just sort of a repetitious kind of a thing that we say and say and say, but that we don't actually think about and it's not really directed toward God or for the benefit of people around us in calling them to pray with us. Um, and then uh, Luke 9. Hang on a second. I've written down the wrong... Ah, okay, so that, that is the right verse. Turn back to Luke chapter 9. And look at verse 18. It happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Well, that seems kind of strange, right? Because he says he was praying alone, but the disciples were with him. Probably we should understand this to mean that he was praying. He was the one who was speaking, but the disciples were present with him. Is there any parallels to things that we might do in the context of our church services or church life between what's going on here and, and, and what we might do during, in the course of a week? Dinner? Okay, sure. Was oftentimes in the service, someone is leading in prayer, but we ought to be joining along with them in our thoughts, not thinking about lunch or a ball game later in the day or the things that we have to do this week. We should be thinking in prayer, joining along with them. So even though there can be one person praying, we can all collectively be um, joining together. Uh, so, uh, like I said, we're not going to look at those last three verses, Matthew 14, 23, Mark 1, 35, Luke 5, 16. Uh, the book has this quote, Rarely did he part company with his men and then only to pray. Um, most of the time when Jesus was praying, he was doing it in the presence of his disciples which is, I think, a strong argument for us to see the value of praying together. So then we have the question, all right, great, Jesus and his disciples prayed together, but Jesus and his disciples, they had kind of a special relationship, and they weren't the church per se, so is there still a pattern for us doing prayer in the church in the same kind of way? We're going to step through some passages in the book of Acts, and I think that will show us that that is the case. Uh, who would like to read Acts 1.14? Okay, Robert. Okay. Uh, two points of context about this verse. So there's a group of people devoting themselves to prayer. And technically, we wouldn't say that they were the church yet because the day of Pentecost hasn't come. But they are going to become the church in the next chapter. You have in verse 13 the surviving apostles. Obviously, Judas Iscariot's now dead, but the rest of the apostles are gathered. And then verse 14 tells us they're gathered with the women and with Jesus' brothers. So that would have been James and Jude and others. And then, um, when we have a question about how many people were gathered there, verse 15 says, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons together. So, this was a decent-sized group that was gathering regularly for prayer, 
waiting for the promise of Jesus to be fulfilled, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the establishment of the church. Um, this is not a... Like we talked about when we were going through the book of Acts, there are things that are historical fact, and there are things which are patterns for our practice, and it takes wisdom to think through those things. The fact that 120 people gathered in the room is a historical fact and should not be taken to be like that's the perfect number for a prayer meeting. Otherwise, you know, if you didn't have 120 people, if you had more than 120 people, you would say, no, we can't have a prayer meeting. So, uh, I don't want us to read more into these passages than what they're actually saying. The main point that we're trying to see is what characterized the group that would become the early church, what characterizes the early church and the rest of the book of Acts is that they're gathering together for uh, praying with one another. Look at Acts 2 and verse 42. Someone want to read for us Acts 2, 42. Okay, Bob. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayer. Okay. The first two things, I think, are fairly clear. The last two things we might have more questions about is the breaking of bread, gathering for just meals together, or is it an observation of what Jesus commanded them to do? Probably it is an observation of the Lord's table. If that is the case, then the prayer that they are doing is probably not just them praying by themselves, but them collectively participating in prayer there is a, a corporate sort of context from verse 41 to 47. There was added about 3,000 souls of those who believed and were baptized. They were devoting themselves to these things. Miracles were happening through the apostles. Those who believed were together and had all things in common. Day by day, continuing with one mind, breaking bread from house to house. They took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Uh, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so right after the founding of the early church, they are gathering together for prayer, for fellowship, and also for observation of baptism and the Lord's table. So, uh, we move on to chapter 4 and verse 24. The apostles, specifically Peter and John, were arrested were threatened by the uh, priests, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They returned to those that they had been gathering with. And what was the immediate response of the people in verse 24? They prayed. They prayed together, right? They lifted their voices to God with one accord. Turn over to chapter... 6 and verse 6. The choosing of the seven men to assist the apostles was also something that was characterized by prayer together. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 6, these, the seven men, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And so there is corporate prayer in connection with appointing people for specific ministry tasks. Then we come to 
uh, Acts chapter 12 and verse 5. Just as an aside, uh, chapter 9, God tells uh, Ananias that Paul is praying, go and meet with him. There's a possibility that they pray together, but it doesn't specifically say that. Uh, Peter is praying when he has the vision of Cornelius, well, technically the vision of the sheet, which was to point him of the appropriateness of going with Cornelius. Those two are examples of, of people praying on their own. And then we come to chapter 12. And verse 5, praying in the context of trials, specifically persecution. Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So we've seen people praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit, praying in the context of the founding of the church, um, praying as they're fellowshipping with one another, uh, praying about persecution, praying again about a difficulty. Peter's in prison, they want God to free him. Yes. In that regard, how do you take that to mean because we're told that vain repetition is pointless? So if they were, you know, were they all taking turns saying, you know, Lord, please, please free Peter. And the next person, Lord, please free Peter. You know what I'm saying? Like, is it, do you, do you see that as repetition or do you see that as, you know, taking turns praying differently about the circumstances. I just always wonder about that because it seemed like they're referring that there was a long time that went by that they were praying, and it didn't tell us how specifically they were praying. Right, so look at the next quote there. That the early church prayed together, that should be plain, not plan, that's a typo. That the early church prayed together is plain. The details of how they went about it are not. This is significant. There is no one pattern for corporate prayer, whether it's in twos or tens, hundreds or thousands. The practices of praying together vary. So in response to your question, I think I would say, we would rather that there was an instruction manual that said, step one, gather a group of five people. Step two, here are some sample words to say. Step three, each person should take four minutes in their prayer. That's not how it's laid out for us. And so the short answer to your question would be, I don't think we can know for sure. Um, I think probably one of the best examples that we could use as a template would be the fact that Paul prayed for the same kinds of things for all the churches that he prayed for, but he tended to say it in slightly different ways. So along those lines, when we're teaching our kids to pray, having them pray at meals, we should probably work on some variety from God, thank you for our food, thank you for our family, amen. You know, along those lines, that's what we tend to ha do the same kinds of things. And we're going to, uh, we're going to get into some of that as we come uh, under the five practical suggestions. Let's finish getting through the book of Acts and then maybe that'll help tie in with what you're saying there. Um, Chapter 13, verse 3, is the calling of Barnabas and Saul, later Paul, to be uh, the first missionaries. Same kind of thing as in Acts 6, right? You need to, they or not you need to, but they prayed together as they were sending them out. Uh, Acts 14, 23, uh, Paul and Barnabas are returning back 
through the um, returning back through the churches that they've already visited. And as they're returning through those churches, uh, elders are appointed, there's prayer with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So again, in the context both of anticipated persecution and in the context of people being appointed to positions of ministry leadership. Then we come to chapter 16 and verse 25. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So, if they're doing this and the prisoners are listening to them, what does that tell us about their prayer and their... It was out loud. So, while there's nothing wrong with praying silently in a group, it does seem that at least in some of these instances, clearly the pattern was to speak out loud where others could hear. Uh, chapter 20 is Paul meeting with the elders at Ephesus. When he had said all these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then chapter 21 and verse 5, kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. What do we observe about the places in which public corporate prayer is happening? Lots of different places, right? On the beach, not because they were going on vacation, but because Paul was leaving and he was getting on the ship there. On the beach, in someone's house, in the jail, in the context of where they were meeting for the church, which could have been a former synagogue, could have been someone's house, could have been outside in some places. So they are praying in a variety of places, and they are praying together. And then I was thinking back through if there was any additional passages that weren't mentioned in the book. Um, and I think those are the main ones that were mentioned, at least as far as corporate prayer in the book. Uh, I think it, prayer is certainly implied in the course of Paul's journey, but um, I don't think it's necessarily spelled out in quite the same way of people gathering and praying together. So. Yeah. I was I was glancing through to see if I saw that passage, but. Um, it's clear that he's talking to God and then he's communicating that with them but it just doesn't spell it out quite as clearly as some of the other passages that we looked at uh, we already read the quote from page 110 now let's talk about some of these practical suggestions for praying together first of all make it regular along these lines I would ask you do you come to pray on Wednesday night if not, why not do you meet with fellow church members or other Christians to pray during the week? Um, this does not have to be a formal thing. It does not have to be every Thursday these two people are going to meet at this specific spot. But having structure can be helpful. And so along those lines, if you do say we're going to do this one of the things that he mentions with regard to goals is putting a specific time limit on it, not because it's something that you should stop doing, but just because there was a guy who said, I promised my wife when we got married that I was going to do the dishes every night for the rest of our lives. That's a pretty expansive commitment. So be realistic both about what you are capable of doing um, 
And uh, I mean, if, if I would not take it, certainly like we've talked about connection with the church commitments, I would not take it to the level of a vow. I would just say, you know what, here's what we're planning to do, and let's try to do it for a month. Let's try to do it till Thanksgiving. Let's try to do it till the end of the year. Those sorts of things. But the important thing would be that we have regular times that we are praying with people. In light of this passage, I was actually thinking about um, something that I've seen other churches do, which is to incorporate a time of prayer into the church service on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning in addition to Wednesday night. And that's something that I'm still thinking about the best way that we could possibly implement that. But I think that that would be good for people who have class or school or other obligations that prevents them from being here on Wednesday night as a reminder that this is something that we ought to be doing regularly, those sorts of things. Because I feel like we do the someone leading from the pulpit prayer, me praying, one of the ushers praying, we do that consistently in our services on Sunday morning, but we don't necessarily do that on Sunday night. So that's something that I've thought about in light of being reminded going through this chapter how we could how we could make that work. Um, what are some if, if you find yourself not gathering for prayer in light of question one, what are some potential obstacles or reasons that you might be hesitant to pray with other people? They could be your reasons, they could be other re- people's reasons. Right, and sometimes we go to that, and I'm not saying that that's not the case. Okay, so those are some hesitations. Um, what are, not sure what to say. Okay, good. Um, what else? Other reasons we might be hesitant to pray in a group or just be uncomfortable in that situation. I think those are some of the main ones. I don't know what to say or feeling embarrassed is I'm not sure if I will sound like I know what I'm talking about to the people around me. And I think there's a little bit of a tension there because the goal of us praying is not to impress people, but we are praying recognizing that they're listening. So there's some some tensions there that we have to work through. And this is true in human relationships too, right? You just had a fight with people in your family. Do you want to look them in the eye and have long conversations with them? Not really. Um, but the solution is to push through the difficulty of that tension in the relationship and actually resolve the issue instead of letting it sort of go on. Kind of like... Um, All of us in our family at some point or another I think have gotten scratched by the cats. And the, kid, the kids are not excited about that because they know that it, I'm, if, if I happen to be home, I'm going to be like, all right, let's go to the bathroom, let's get an alcohol swab, let's wipe it off. That stings, right? 
also helpful for not getting infection. This happened over the weekend, which is why it's fresh in my memory. And so we need to think about that, and if there are obstacles to praying that are sin or that are pride or that are those sorts of things, we have to push through the sting and the tension and, and deal with them. Yes? I was thinking also along the lines of not knowing what to say, which is another common issue. This is something that I've thought about continually working to try to help Braden and Maggie, for example, in my case, to know what to say and how to pray and those sorts of things. And the practical reality, if we had parents who are unsaved or parents who are faithful at going to church but were weak in patterning prayer for us, if we haven't really had good examples on how to do it, we will tend to latch on to just any examples that we've observed. Ideally, the progression should be, here's a biblical pattern, let's follow the biblical pattern, all right, let's pray in the group following the biblical pattern. But what often happens instead is, I saw somebody do this, and I don't know what else to do, so I'm just going to do this, which leads into the next one, start with scripture. Do your prayers with others include scripture used rightly? When I say scripture used rightly, it is possible for us to take a verse and to use it out of its context. For example, um, the one, that, one of the ones, I think it's is it 2 Chronicles 7, the people that are called by your name, humble themselves and pray, you'll heal their land, forgive them, and so forth. That's not about the church. We can say, God, just like you promised to bless Israel when they came before you humbly. We ask that as we confess our sin, you would also bless us. We could say something like that, but we can't claim, you know, Second Chronicles 7.14 or other passages that are often quoted, I know the plans I have for you that are for good and not for evil. That's not my verse. That belonged to Israel. Now, here's the tension. The same God that promised that to Israel is the same God that works with us in the church today and so that verse certainly has application to us, but it's not a promise to us like it was to its original hearers. To some extent, that's also true of things in the New Testament. Sometimes we think, well, we're the church. This is something in the New Testament that was written to the church, and so the promise that God made to them is a promise that he made to me. And there are also passages like that in the New Testament where it's not a promise to us today in the church in America like it was from God to the church at Philippi but it certainly has application to us, and the same God who is at work in them is the same God who is at work in us. And so when I say use Scripture rightly, we've got to have all those things in our mind, and that shouldn't paralyze us, because it's not like God is going to be super angry with us if we haven't thought as carefully as we should have with a passage, and we pray a verse, and then a few weeks later we're reading something else and we realize, you know what, that's probably not what that verse means. It's not like we immediately lose our relationship with God and He hates us forever because we misuse that. But our goal should always be to be striving to use Scripture the right way. So, 
we should use Scripture more, and it doesn't have to just be quoting Scripture. It can be the, the sense, the ideas, the attitudes of Scripture. You say, you know what, I know the Bible says this, but I can't remember the exact phrasing. It's possible to pray the idea, not just the words, although it's also good to have Scripture memorized so we can pray some of those words. What often happens when we're not praying Scripture, when we're unsure what to say, is that we punctuate our prayers with things like, Father, or Lord, or we ask, or what are some other words that sometimes people use to fill in the blanks as pauses in prayer? Okay, sometimes we default to the generic on What else? Okay, what else? Why are you telling me if I already said that? No. <laughs> what else? What other words do we use as filler? What's that? Okay. Maybe and. Um, we could take a phrase that's a good phrase like for your glory and sort of tack it on to all of our phrases. The, the point is not that any of these things are bad or untrue in terms of what they are in themselves. The point is, let's be careful not to use God's name as filler, because then we're bordering on violating the spirit of one of the commandments. And let's be careful not just to say phrases that we're not thinking about, because then we're potentially erring uh, the error of the Gentiles, where they just said a lot of things instead of thinking about what they were saying. So if you find yourself, you say, you know what, I'm not sure what to say, I've prayed all the things I can think of at the moment, stop, move on, let someone else pray potentially. And that I think ties in with um, what you were saying earlier, Bob, that it doesn't necessarily have to be all the same things. It's not wrong for two people to pray for the same thing. It might be helpful when we're looking at the prayer sheet, you pick out a couple of things that you want to pray about, if the person right before you prays about two of those, consider praying about two other things because what often happens is we don't pray through everything that's on the prayer sheet. We might pray for the needs of the church but not pray for our government leaders. We might pray for discipleship but not pray for evangelism. We might pray for evangelism here but not pray for missions. And so there's far more things that we can cover in the course of our prayer time in our groups. And while overlap is not sinful, it's probably good to uh, think through that. Uh, we'll get to that a little bit more in number four. Look at number three. We should talk to one another about our needs, but do you find that you spend most of your times in groups praying or discussing what you should pray about? So the idea of limiting share time. So um, this is a tension for me because I want to cover the psalm or whatever we're going through adequately on a Wednesday night. I also want to leave time for prayer. I also want to know what's going on in your lives that maybe I hadn't heard about since the last time we talked on a Sunday or on a Wednesday. Um, I've tried to sometimes call people ahead so that I can know some of those things so we can keep that updating on prayer request time a little bit shorter. I don't feel like we do a terrible job at it, but it's always something that we want to keep in mind as attention. If we spend more time discussing prayer requests in that time than we do actually praying in our groups, and if we then in our groups have another five or ten minutes of discussing prayer requests, then we're actually only praying for like five minutes. Um, I haven't observed that to be the case, but that's just one of those ongoing tensions to think about in corporate prayer. Um, I'm going to leave the last question there as a rhetorical question. 
think about it. Love to hear feedback on it. How can we improve our time of sharing and focus on prayer on Wednesday nights? Number four, encourage brevity and focus. The corporate setting is not well served by rambling. If you are asked to pray or if you have opportunity to pray, don't just say things to say things. This is a... You ever had a talkative child? This is an ongoing challenge, right? Some children are not talkative children. Some are very talkative, and they will say anything and everything because they enjoy talking. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're still that way. But in the context of corporate prayer, the focus is not on me having an opportunity to say everything I want to say. The focus is on leading other people well before God. So here's some practical thoughts. When praying in group, do you pray long? Do you pray short? Do you go around the group several times? Have you ever prayed one-sentence prayers? Again, because the patterns in Acts and elsewhere in scriptures are primarily about the what and not about the how, and even the Lord's Prayer, we say, well, it's, you know, it's a pattern for prayer. It's about the how should we pray. But it's really a lot about the what do we pray. Here's the categories of things that we pray about. Not so much how long do we pray, how many requests do we pray for, those sorts of things. And so there's some flexibility, and so I think variety is helpful for uh, avoiding just sort of uh, falling into a habit and just doing the same things without thinking about them. Number five, pray without show but with others in mind. Good corporate prayer is not directed just to God but has our feather, fellow prayers in view. Do you pray using we language? If you are leading the church in prayer, it is probably more important to say things like, we ask, uh, we confess our sins, you know, those sorts of things, as opposed to, I ask, I've sinned in these ways, those sorts of things, because we're leading the group, we're speaking together to God, not just for ourselves. So just some practical things to think about. Nine prophets or advantages of praying with company. The first six have scripture passages tied to them. And then the last three, I think, are true, but um, it didn't give a specific passage. First of all, for added power. Uh, he's talking about Matthew 18, the idea where two or three are gathered together in my name. And he put that in the context of the authority of the church. Sometimes we put it as, you know, your church meeting can just be three people and God still will bless it. But the main emphasis is in the context of the authority of the church and where two or three people are gathered together, then that is a different sort of a thing than just one person by him or herself. What's one of the differences between several people gathered and one person gathered in terms of the appropriateness or the likeliness, the appropriateness of the request or the likeliness of God hearing it? What's different between if I pray by myself or if I pray with other people? Mm-hmm. But I think we have a pattern that you know, call issues and even do this, you know, pray with me. Because the more people that pray, the more rejoicing, the more glory God gets. Okay, and we will definitely get down to that in number three. But, I mean, is that but it ties in. Um, I mean, is that, though, can we say that there's more power? Because obviously in Matthew he's talking about church discipline. Mm -hmm. And so, 
This is what we were debating about on the way to church. Okay. While people use that verse out of context mm -hmm. to say, wherever two or three are gathered, you know, then God is with us. That's not what it's saying. But that doesn't mean that it's not true in other circumstances. I guess the thing that I was thinking about, and it's something I want to think about more because I had a little bit of tension with that one too, I think we should see it as potentially a safeguard against selfish prayers from the perspective that if I am praying by myself and there's no one to correct me and I'm praying for a bunch of things that are selfishly motivated, God hears my prayer, but he's not going to say yes to things that are for selfish reasons, right? I mean, James, I think, gives us, make, emphasizes that point. So, one of the safeguards of praying with other people is that we are unified in praying for things that actually please God and that he is then likely to answer because they're according to his will. That's not a complete answer, but that's some of the things I was thinking about connected with that passage. So I'd love to talk about that more. We'll keep moving for sake of time. For multiplied joy, Paul said, you know, if we're all praying together about the same things, then when God answers that prayer, it's not just one or two people. It's a whole bunch of us that are rejoicing that God answered that prayer. For greater glory to God along the same lines, not just our joy, but praise to God, because it should be we rejoice and then we attribute that thanksgiving to God. Quick side note coming up on Thanksgiving. I'm thankful. Who are you thankful to? Thankfulness demands an object that should be to God. We'll uh, come back to that again when we come to Thanksgiving. Number four, for fruitful ministry and mission. Paul says, I want to go do all these things in Spain and all these other kinds of places. I'm not going to be able to do it if you don't pray together with me to God and God hears and answers our prayers and provides and works out all the details. Number five, for unity among believers, kind of along the lines of what we're talking about with number one, but also the fact that the church was praying together with one mind. Paul emphasizes the importance of unity in the book of Ephesians, and so part of the way that we arrive at the unity that we're supposed to have in the Spirit is when we're praying together about the same things that God wants us to pray about. For answers we wouldn't otherwise get. Um, that sounds like little bit like number one and a little bit potentially this one I had a little bit of attention on but I was thinking through it if we I, I guess I would agree with it in this sense there are things that can only happen in the corporate life of the church that can't happen when we're by ourselves if I've sinned against a fellow church member I can't fully resolve that by myself I have to be gathered with other believers there has to be confession of sin both to that person and to God and in that context, then God is not free like I had his hands tied, but free in terms of uh, the fact that he's a just and holy God and acts according to certain patterns um, to then respond positively to a particular prayer in a way that if that gathering and confessing and praying is not happening, he won't do. And then number seven, to learn and grow in our prayers. Uh, which ties in then again to number one, if I'm praying selfishly, hopefully somebody would be like, you know what, I really don't think that you probably should have been praying that way in the group. And that will be hard and uncomfortable too, because especially if it's someone who's hesitant to pray and then they pray, we don't want them to then not pray. But we could say, you know what, I think it would have been better to say this. 
you know, something along those lines. Um, and then number eight, to know each other. We have a better sense of who we are in terms of our needs and even beyond that in terms of who we are in our character before God because prayer is something... Why don't people want to talk about religion and politics and those sorts of things? Because they're very... They tend to be viewed as very personal and private kinds of things. And in this context, there is um, an openness that is vulnerable gets tossed around. But it, you have to open yourself up a little bit. There's an opportunity of getting hurt. It, it sort of shows your attitude and your thinking before God. The last one is to know Jesus more. If this is a pathway of God's grace, then praying both by ourselves and together will draw us closer to Christ. All right, we'll wrap up there for sake of time. Uh, certainly could discuss more of these things next week as needed. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to look at these truths together. Help us to apply them to our lives, to see the things that are according to your word, to see the things that maybe are practical suggestions but might not be helpful to us at the present time. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful in praying with one another as well as on our own. Uh, and to be doing both regularly and faithfully in Christ's name. Amen.